This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And they work hard to help small business become big ones by fighting for public policy that allows them to do just that. And you'll definitely want to stick around for this story because it's about the man behind perhaps one of the most recognizable brands in American history, brought to us by our own Joey Cortez. The world was a little simpler a little more magical. There were more heroes, more things to, to think about. And Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, they were my heroes. They were some of my heroes. You are listening to the story of a man who you all know, but don't really know. You know his brand, so you know his name, which wasn't always his name. He was born Ralph Lifshitz, the son of two Jewish immigrant outcasts from the Soviet Union. And despite a modest upbringing in the Bronx, New York, everyone knew Ralph as the man with swagger and style. You know, I had older brothers, so, you know, when you have older brothers to live up to, in a way, you sort of, uh, you're advanced more than kids your own age. So maybe I sort of wore what my brothers wore. And and, uh, I, I never thought about style. I didn't know what that word meant. And he didn't have to. He just naturally had it. I'm telling you, every time I see a picture of this man, I think to myself, my God, that man has style. Everything about him screams style. The perfect man to stop the European fashion moguls who were ready to take control of the American fashion market. You see, at the time, there wasn't much of an American fashion industry. And while the Beatles and their British invasion were pretty much taking control of the American rock and roll scene. The European fashion icons from Italy, the United Kingdom, and France were ready to take the American fashion scene by storm. Standing in their way was Ralph Lifshitz. But first, to complete his style, Ralph, at 16 years old, would change his name from Lifshitz to Lauren. That's right, folks. This is the story of Ralph Lauren. Years later, after serving in the army, working as a salesman for Brooks Brothers, and then a necktie manufacturer, Ralph began designing his own ties, marked by his wide, bold, and colorful designs during a time when plain skinny ties were in vogue. In the beginnings, when I started, the necktie industry was full of men wearing hats, and they were old men. And it was a very dead industry and here I came along and I had a sports car and I come with a tweed jacket and I zip into my car with a bag of ties and I go to the stores around the, around the area and I, uh, I was selling what I was, what I believed in. Selling himself and the American dream. You see, Ralph really couldn't afford that sports car. I mean, the man was selling ties out of a single drawer in a showroom of the Empire State Building, but he was investing in himself, his image, his brand, something his company would make possible for everyday Americans too, helping them dress and brand themselves in lifestyles they previously couldn't afford or find in stores. From the nostalgic Americana style of cattle herding cowboys to the style 
of Wall Street bankers. Ralph made those accessible to everyday Americans. I'm inspired by a lifestyle that is, that is happy. You know, we all go through our life hoping that we're going to be successful, hoping that we're going to be able to buy the house that we want, hoping that we can have the ranch or the, you know. So I was inspired by those worlds, you know. I was inspired, the thought of being a rancher, the thought about living in a log cabin, that was one of my dreams. But also I had another dream, you know, in the reality, of, you know, of uh, I love stone houses. You know, I love Persian rugs. I like, uh, I like elegance. I like them both. And I think I, in terms of what I was doing, is I wasn't, my things are new, but they're inspired by a concept of living as, as opposed to, to fashion. It's not just a jacket. Here's a jacket. My shoulders come out here now and, and buy it now because it's the hot new look. My jacket was the tweed jacket with the suede over patches, but it was great fabric. Maybe it had a... What you thought you can buy in England, what you thought Cary Grant was wearing and Fred Astaire, you could not walk into a store and buy. You couldn't buy. You couldn't walk into a store. No store has had that. When I came along, the business was not at all like. The things that I made, you could not buy. You couldn't find it. And they had a sense of familiarity because they were traditional in the sense that they had a... They weren't wild. But they were, they were, it's like injecting something and bringing it back in a sense of life. You couldn't walk into Bloomingdale's, you couldn't walk into Saks Fifth Avenue and buy a hacking jacket. Now, a hacking jacket was worn by the people that rode, you know, England. They get dressed and they wore the hacking jacket, it had a flare on the side vents. So, one thing is the product, the other thing is, is, where it goes. A man gets dressed, he goes, he's like, I have to go to dinner. He's, uh, he goes and buys a, a tie and he wants to look elegant that night. He's going to go back to his, he's going to feel elegant when he gets dressed that night. And he's going to go to a place and he says, wait a minute, I have this great club I'm going to and I'm going to wear this and I know I'm going to look great. So he, he feels strong about himself and he knows it's the appropriate thing to wear to this place. What I did was see these things. The hacking jacket represented a life that I loved. It was old England and they looked great. I don't know what it was at the time, but I said, you know, that hacking, I'd love to have that. Right. I couldn't find it in the store. I said, where can I get that? Where can I get it? And you couldn't get it anywhere. So I said, I'd like to make that. So I made it so you can wear it. It's a sport jacket. And these things, they sound vague, possibly, because they're part of our vernacular today, but it, it didn't exist. And neither did his first product, the wide tie. Well, it existed, but it just wasn't fashionable, and you really couldn't find them in stores. But soon enough, Ralph caught the attention of one of the largest department stores in the country. From selling ties out of a single drawer in the Empire State Building, to landing a meeting with Bloomingdale's. And when we come back, you won't believe the story you're about to hear. And what a story it is. A young man fashions the fashion business in an image that he thought the American people would love, and boy, did they. Ralph Lauren's story continues here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Ralph Lauren's story. We left off with him entering his first sale with a pretty big client in New York City, Bloomingdale's. We bring you back to the late 1960s, and a young, handsome, and confident Ralph Lauren arrives in a sports car to a meeting with Bloomingdale's, eager to strike a deal, but not too eager. He showed them to the Bloomingdale tie buyer. That's Marvin Traub, a former president of Bloomingdale's. Who said, I like them, I'll buy them, but I don't want that Ralph Lauren label on it. I want a Bloomingdale label. Now here's Ralph starting and struggling in business, about to get an order from Bloomingdale's. He closed his sample case and said, I will not accept the order without my name. It's a matter of staying on a path, staying in a direction, having a point of view, believing in what you're doing, and having the, the, the scope and the focus to say, this is who I want to be, this is what I like. An important lesson for entrepreneurs, betting on yourself and your product, and having the wisdom for knowing when to strike a deal and when to walk away. And good thing Ralph did, because just a few months later, he would get a call back from Bloomingdale's. Here again is Marvin Traub. I thought the ties were terrific. And if he wanted his name on it, that was fine because I felt the ties would sell. Just one year with Bloomingdale's, Ralph sold a half million dollars in ties and soon enough caught the attention of other big department stores followed by an expansion from the tie industry into upscale menswear, women's wear, lifestyle, and home products. Ralph soon became a household name around the world. By 1986, Ralph Lauren's company was worth over an estimated half billion dollars. At a glance, things were going quite well, but a look behind the scenes told another story. In 1987, just as Ralph was about to make the cover of Time magazine, he was also diagnosed with a brain tumor. At the same time as I was on the cover of Time magazine, I knew Time magazine was coming out and I knew I was going in for a brain tumor operation. I couldn't enjoy either one of them. I couldn't enjoy Time magazine. And the two the two distances of life, the fact that, that on one hand I hit the heights of one side, and the other side the impossible thing happened on Time Magazine, and the impossible thing happened on Brain Tumor. How could I get a brain tumor? Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? I look great. Where'd that come from? You know, that happens to somebody else. Time Magazine happens to somebody else. I was split right in half. So that alone was an incredible contrast in my life. Just my life has been an incredible contrast in growing up and go in my career. The heights were so hard to even deal with in a funny way. So the brain tumor coming along. Uh, fortunately, it was not. It was benign. The experience of looking at my wife and my family. I remember being being told that I have to go in for an operation. I remember seeing 
my daughter and my son were very little at the time. We were in this big open space, and I said, I can't believe this. I all of a sudden stepped out of my life and was looking at them as if I wasn't there anymore. And thankfully, Ralph had a successful surgery and came out of it with a newfound perspective on life. I was able to step away from myself and see life as something that was not always going to be here. I know the feeling of saying, I may not be around tomorrow. I have a lot of sensitivity to other people that somehow at this age, uh, I'm not groping in the world, trying to be something. I know who I am. And so did the rest of the world. Just two years later, Ralph Lauren's dreams would come true when one of his childhood heroes, Audrey Hepburn, would present him with the Oscar of the fashion industry, awarding Ralph with the Council of American Fashion Designers Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's Jeff Madoff, a close business associate of Ralph Lauren. There was one of his muses, his icons, Audrey Hepburn, the woman that he watched when he was a little kid in the movies, now handing him this statue that for him could have been the Oscar. Remember the princess? I got her. <laughs> Ralph was sitting at the throne of the fashion industry, but that throne wasn't very sturdy. His company, suffering from distribution problems and massive expenditures on brand recognition, was on the road to bankruptcy. Luckily, Ralph was thrown a lifeline by Goldman Sachs, buying 28% of his company, worth over an estimated quarter billion dollars today. Soon enough, Goldman Sachs brought Ralph Lauren's company public. This scared Ralph. While Goldman helped salvage his company, allowing him to expand and open up restaurants and stores in almost every major hub around the world, and perhaps becoming one of the most recognizable brands in human history, Ralph feared that he would have less and less control over his brand. Though with bold and crafty leadership and marketing, Ralph managed to instill his undying legacy within his company, his undying style. A style marked by Ralph's nostalgia for the American West, a life of hard work, grit, and meaning, and a style marked by the future he always envisioned for himself, one of accomplishment and success, which all goes back to the very people he admired as a kid. I was very influenced by movies. I was very influenced by uh, a world that had a sense of dream, that had a sense of something else. And what I was influenced in these places was the good guy, the, 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 the Hopalong Cassidy, um, not the corny guy, but the, there was the man on the white horse. You know, if you think of a cowboy, you think of fringe jackets and old leather things. Think of a you think of certain um, images that, that represent something that are never dying. I always liked country clothes, tweediness. I always loved my history teacher who wore gum sole shoes and suede elbow patches. Uh, so it's a combination of, of heroes, in a way, that um, had, a, had a something to them. Heroes like the actors who both dressed and conducted themselves with class, and the gritty adventurous characters they played in the movies. A very unique thing 
to have a brand inspired by two entirely different worlds. If you watch Gary Cooper in the movies, you'd see Gary Cooper was a very elegant man. At the same time, he had a ranch where he grew up, uh, and you'd see, you'd see uh, High Noon, and you really believed he was a cowboy. Well, I loved this guy in both roles. You know, I, he was a hero to me, and he was rugged and tough, and at the same time, he was very elegant. And, and so it wasn't, um, you know, I don't believe you can live, you can have to be one thing. Like the American dream, a notion that has allowed people to not only dream for a different life, but to attain it. Illustrated by the very life of Ralph Lauren and his company, helping people from around the world be the people they dream to be. You know, I think what's been interesting in, in, in my life is the impossible things have happened in so many different ways. I never went to fashion school. What am I doing here? You know, what am I doing on these lists? What am I doing with these fashion shows? How am I doing it? I can't tell you because it's an amazing thing to me. It's not, I'm doing it. I know I'm doing it because it didn't exist before I came. I didn't, it didn't happen before and someone said, okay, Ralph, do it. And I've done products that I never, I didn't have any training. I don't know how it's happening. It's an amazing thing for me. At the same time, I don't know how I had the brain to and all those things. But life is about that in a way. A, a fellow I worked with that came at the office said, it was from another company, said, he said, you know, up till now I thought I had to change in this world, in this business, because people are tough and rough, you know, and they're not always so nice. He said, I was just in your company, I was working with your people, and they're so nice. You know, and I think maybe, maybe I have the right answer. Maybe people aren't all that tough in this business. My sense is that you can make your life be whatever you want it to be. And great job on that, Joey. Impossible things have happened in my life. He never went to fashion school. He said no to Bloomingdale's in his early 20s. He wanted his name on the label. Crazy, right? Goldman Sachs, by the way, comes in, the big bad banks, and saves the company. The American dream here, that's what we call these stories, American dreamer stories, none better than Ralph Lauren's. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our special Fathers series, which tells the stories of fathers with special needs children, and it's brought to us by the Special Fathers Network, which matches up longtime fathers who have children with special needs with brand new ones for fellowship and mutual counseling on their shared journey of ups and downs. And you can learn more about it at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. Org. And now, here's our own Joey Cortez with this edition. Skip Giannopoulos is happily married with four daughters. Yes, it is possible to be happily married with four daughters, at least when you have a sense of humor, like Skip's. As I like to say, I'm a minority in a sorority. <laughs> <laughs> a sense of humor that Skip would need 
when he would have not one, but two daughters with special needs. One daughter, Jessica, with Down syndrome, and another daughter, Cassidy, with Down syndrome and autism. Particularly with Down syndrome, there's no predisposition to having a second child with Down syndrome once you have your first. So literally it is like lightning striking twice. In fact, I um, thought a little bit about buying lottery tickets after that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was very unlikely to have two, two kids with Down syndrome. In fact, we don't know any other families that are in, in our spot naturally. And Skip's initial reaction to learning that his daughter Jessica had Down syndrome, was not great. We found out about her diagnosis in the hospital delivery room. Wow. And it was shocking. Um, You know, I remember uh, just thinking, you know, being in the financial planning industry and and business, thinking, uh, of course, jumping way out into the future, thinking about what retirement was going to be like with a... uh, with a adult child living with us and um, you know really probably came to some very negative pictures of what my life was going to be like um, and I would say it was a it was a dark spot to be in did not have any people that I could uh, reach out to that had been there before I was so felt a little bit alone and um, I remember I remember one of the first phone calls I made uh, was to my brother, and um, you know his comment was, "I guess there's going to be no more short bus jokes in our family." <laughs> you know, it just goes to show a little bit of how we, you know, we just really did not have any real connection with special needs uh, community. And that would certainly change. Skip and his wife Gail would become one of the four founding couples of Gigi's Playhouse, a place of play in suburban Chicago for one girl named Gigi and her friends who also happen to have Down syndrome. Gigi is uh, my daughter Jessica's uh, best friend. Uh, They do quite a bit together and um, Gigi and Jessica are about six months apart. So Gigi's Playhouse has kind of grown up right alongside of our Jessica and and certainly Gigi uh, as well. But uh, Gigi's Playhouse is a resource center for uh, kids and families of kids with special needs, and particularly with Down syndrome. As time has gone on, it's expanded um, in terms of the program offering, and it's now uh, expanded quite a bit in terms of its footprint as well. From one location in Hoffman Estates, it's grown to about 30 locations all across the country and even one location in Mexico as well. And just like that... From no participation in the special needs community to making an impact worldwide. But what kind of impact does Gigi's Playhouse really have? Well, according to Skip, one of the most difficult things for parents who are pregnant with a child who has special needs is that the medical community almost solely focuses on the negatives. So Gigi's Playhouse fills in the gaps by reaching out to those in the medical community and providing them with materials so that they can better comfort and encourage their patients who have children with special needs. An important mission to help prevent disturbing interactions such as the one that Skip and his wife Gail 
had with their doctor when pregnant with their second daughter who has special needs. We knew uh, in advance about our second daughter, Cassidy's diagnosis. And uh, notwithstanding the fact that the doctors knew we already had a daughter with Down syndrome, they sent us to a, uh, a, um, a genealogist, I believe is the, the, the terminology, and he is literally asking us if we want to terminate the pregnancy. And I'm thinking to myself, you know we already have a daughter with Down syndrome. Would you, why are you even asking the question? And, and secondly, you know, it, it also implied, you know, do we regret having our first daughter? And we're hoping that the message to the medical community, this positive message, and that kids with Down syndrome, you know, have value and that they can bring uh, an element of love and, 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 and care and uh, happiness into a family that, you know, might, might not otherwise exist. We're hoping that that message is going to override some of the things that they have really been trained up on. And when you think about a met, the medical training process, really all they see are the medical negatives that come out of a diagnosis like that. Half of all kids with Down syndrome are born with a hole in their heart. So half of the kids that we know have a big scar on their chest and have gone through open heart surgery uh, multiple times. And, you know, as a medical provider, that's, I guess, seen as a negative. And they're just not seeing the positive side of the coin. So what is the positive side of the coin? Our 16-year-old daughter, Stephanie, there are days where she'll come home and she'll barely acknowledge my presence. <laughs> she will storm right to her room and, you know, that might be the last we see of her for, uh, for a few hours anyways until she needs something or gets hungry. Right. <laughs> so contrasting that to our kids with special needs, you know, Cassidy was still uh, in fifth grade and is one to, um, you know, I could be sitting watching uh, something on TV and she'll come right up to the couch and cuddle up and, uh, you know, have a conversation with me. So, I mean, it's, you know, there are just times where the kids with special needs are, it's just such a refreshing perspective to have. And when you think about it, even going forward, you know, how would it be going through life where, and this is, I would say, typical of kids with, with Down syndrome or people with Down syndrome, you know, most, most people with Down syndrome don't care a whole lot about money. They don't care a whole lot about trying to impress you. Uh, they want you to be happy. They want to love you. And, you know, those are, those are the important things for people with Down syndrome. I would say typically, I realize I'm overgeneralizing, but, you know, we can all learn a lot from that. We can all try to be more like that, quite frankly. And um, hoping a little bit of that rubs off on my 16-year-old. And in the end, we have a father, Skip, who is very proud. Jessica has just done such a great job in terms of being independent. So think about this for a, this would, would have been last year in eighth grade, even for summer school this year. She would tell us when she's ready to go to bed. She would shower. She would brush her teeth. She would put herself to bed. I would, I would go pray with her. She would set her alarm clock, she would get up on her own, have breakfast on her own, get dressed on her own, and then be ready and waiting for the school bus. She'd pack her own backpack and 
like, you know, there's probably not a lot of typical kids that do that as well as Jessica did. And thanks for that work, Joey. What a great story. And thanks to all the work that the Special Fathers Network does. And you can learn more and sign up to be a part of this fantastic network at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. Skip Giannopoulos' story. So many families in this country's story. Here on Our American Stories. stories and you're listening to mark cohen's classic walking in memphis and it may be one of the two best songs ever written about a trip to graceland and the best one ever written we're about to get into and dig into in our story of the song segment and it's one of our favorites here on our american stories and this is the story of graceland as told by writer paul simon And Graceland is the title song of the album Graceland, released in 1986 by Simon. The song features vocals by the Everly Brothers. The lyrics deal with a singer's thoughts during a road trip to Graceland after the failure of his marriage. The song helped Simon win the 1988 Grammy Award for Record of the Year. And now, in his own words, on the creation of the song, here's Paul Simon. The Graceland story is a very uh, interesting story in that it's a very good example of how a collaboration works, even when you're not aware of it occurring. The track is one of the early tracks because I only did five tracks in South Africa. On uh, the sessions that I did with Forere, who was the accordion player, plays on Boy in the Bubble, we did a few other tracks. One of the tracks I said, you know, I, I like only the drums on this track. I don't really want anything else. I don't want the accordion or bass. I just want the drums. And the drums were uh, something like a kind of a traveling rhythm in country music. I'm a big Sun Records fan. and Early 50s, mid 50s Sun Records. You'd hear that drum beat a lot. fast, Johnny Cash type of rhythm. And somewhere later in the week of recording, when I had, uh, 
you know, put together a, a, a rhythm section of Ray Peary and Begidi Kumalo and Isaac Machali as the rhythm section, I said to Ray one day, I like this drum pattern. Take a listen to it and see if it does anything for you. You know, it sounds like a kind of a country thing to me. So he started to play his version of American country, Ray. Uh, he was in the key of E, and then uh, he was playing, uh, you know, like he did. Because he's playing electric, but he would, he would be up over here, you know, like... Uh, uh. Drums are going down. Oh, then he went. Which is a relative minor chord to that key. That's interesting that you played a minor chord because all the music that I've been recording in South Africa, with the exception of the Sutu music, it was all three chord major chords. It was never a minor chord. There were times when I would ask Black Mombazo to sing a minor chord. They couldn't sing a minor chord. They just didn't hear it. So he put in this, uh, this minor chord, and I said, that's, that's interesting, why'd you do that? He said, I was just imitating the, the way you write. Well, I said, we'll play this lick over it. Da, do, dee, da, da, do, da, do, da. Ba, do, dee, da, ba, do, dee, da, da, do, dee, da, da. In an overdub. And he did, and it was a really nice, really nice mix. And Begidi was playing. Dun, 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 dun. emptiness to it. I think that's part of what makes me think that it's something like Sun Records, you know, when it was just a few instruments and nothing really much except slapback echo and the song. There's also another uh, connection musically that's in there, and that is there's a pedal steel guitar in there, which is, of course, you know, like a, a country instrument. But it's also a West African instrument, and the guy who played it, uh, his name was Devola Adejapu. He played with uh, King Sonny Ade's band. You know, I wanted to uh, hear what that lick sounded like. Seemed like it would be a very good pedal steel lick. And it was a great pedal steel lick, but it was also a great Ray Peary performance. What's interesting is that 
Ray reaches into his memory for some kind of approximation of what he thinks of as American country. And Begidi plays straight ahead to the African groove. And so the, the two, you know, the two musics find a commonality. And the lyric expresses that. I'm going to Graceland. Don and Phil Everly came in and sang. I always heard that song as a perfect Everly Brothers song. Poor boys and pilgrims with families, and we are going to Graceland. I was down in South Africa in, I think, February, maybe early March, and I think I didn't go down to, uh, to Memphis until maybe May. Brought it home, and I was trying to write to it. I would, um, you know, sing these lines about Graceland. Graceland, because I'm going to get rid of the Graceland part because, I mean, what's Graceland got to do with South Africa or anything like that? So that's got to go. Just a question of, uh, you know, what I'm going to replace it with. But then I couldn't replace it with anything. I was always singing that. And finally I said, I don't know, maybe I'm supposed to go to Graceland. I've never been. Maybe I'm supposed to go on a trip and see what I'm writing about. So I did. And uh, and then I began to describe the trip, uh, the Mississippi Delta, because I was driving up uh, from uh, Louisiana, uh, where I had cut uh, the Zydeco track on Graceland. I was driving from Highway 61. You know, I'm just writing about what the countryside looked like. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. Following the river down the highway Through the cradle of the Civil War I'm going to Graceland, Graceland Memphis, Tennessee, I'm going to Graceland And finally got there to, you know, to Graceland And just, you know, made a tour through Graceland But what's interesting about all of this is that The part of me that had Graceland in my head I think subconsciously was reacting to what I first heard in the drums, which was a kind of Sun Records country blues amalgam. And what Ray was doing was mixing up his oral recollections of what American country was and what kind of chord changes I played. song really is just one sound evoking a response and that eventually became a lyric that evoked instead of being specifically about a South African subject or even a political subject it became a, a traveling song that had to do with the original sound which was the drums and and uh, and Sun Records and Graceland. That's really the secret of world music, is people are able to listen to each other and uh, make associations and play their own music that sounds like it fits into, a, into another culture. And uh, that's, how it, that's how it works, and that's how it worked then, the story of Graceland. 
And what a story it is. And by the way, Simon is being humble, exceedingly so. These lyrics, read them one day. They'll break your heart. What he's going through, what his ex-wife was going through, his son. But I've reason to believe will be received in Graceland. Always in the end, Simon's great lyricism, his great musical talent. You heard it all here, a remarkable story of his song, Paul Simon's very best song, the story of Graceland, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The term comic book is one of the great misnomers in entertainment, but they're not books, and they're not comical. This American industry has produced cultural icons that are recognized in every corner of the globe. By taking a look inside the pages of the comic book superhero, we can learn much about ourselves and the world around us. Here's Greg Hengler. Once there was a world without comic books. Like jazz and like baseball, like so much that is distinctly American, the comic book is born in the country's margins. In the early 1930s, two immigrant entrepreneurs, Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, run a small publishing company putting out pulp magazines. Here's comic writers Mark Wade and Gerard Jones. So people did jail time for these magazines in the 30s. So they were, they were pornography by the standards of the 30s. Harry Donenfeld almost went to jail. He had to talk one of his employees into taking the rap for him in exchange for a job for life. The handwriting came on the wall about 37, 38. He thought, you know what, maybe Spicy Pulps is not where I want to be if the law is going to be breathing down my neck. For a country in the midst of the Great Depression, newspaper comic strips, or funnies, are a popular, cheap, and humorous amusement. Comic books are simply reprints of newspaper comic strips. In 1935, a 45-year-old former U.S. Army major and prolific pulp magazine writer named Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson is inspired to put out his own comic book. But unlike the others, he will feature original comic material created by freelance cartoonists. January 11, 1935, you go to the newsstands in New York and you find on them Fun Comics number one, the very first DC comic. Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson had a sense not just that this is filler, but that new material might find its own audience. The major needs business partners, and Donenfeld and Leibowitz need less racy material to publish. In 1937, the three men enter into a partnership, and Detective Comics, the comic that would give DC its name, hits the stands. As the title promises, Detective Comics differs from comic strips and books. Humor is giving way to crime fighting. At the same time in Cleveland, Ohio, two high school students, sons of Jewish immigrants, are escaping the struggles of their everyday lives into a fantasy world of their own making. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster are shy and unpopular in school. Unsuccessful with the girls, and insecure about their bespectacled appearance and physical abilities. 
They lose themselves in science fiction magazines and nurture fantasies of power and success. Here's comic illustrator Arlen Schumer and comic book historian Danny Fingeroth. I think it was the year 1934. It was a hot summer night, and Jerry Siegel, the teenage writer, couldn't sleep at night. He was tossing and turning. He had this dream in which he kept having these flashes of a character that would be a combination of Samson and Hercules and a dozen other characters from the Bible to the comic strips to the serials in the movie theater. He wrote it all down. The very next morning, he runs over to his friend Joe Schuster's house, his artist friend, and he tells him the story of this superheroic character. And Joe Schuster starts making the original drawings. Joe Schuster was a bodybuilder and fascinated with uh, bodybuilding magazines, fascinated with images of acrobats, the tights, the cape. You can see all that in Superman's costume. Jerry Siegel's father died in a robbery when Jerry was a teenager. And the perpetrators were never caught. So he had this very immediate, visceral reason to hate crime. And I think Superman for him was a character who could, in a fantasy way, prevent things like that from happening. Here's Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I was quite meek and I was quite mild, and I thought, gee, wouldn't it be great if I was a mighty person and these girls didn't know that this clot here is really somebody special. I was very small, and I was always pushed around by bullies and so forth, so... That was one of my dreams. I took courses in bodybuilding and weightlifting. I don't know if it helped, but I made an effort. In the artistic world of the 1930s, comic books ranked just above the adult magazine industry. Comic strip creators are very rich celebrities. Guys like Chester Gould with Dick Tracy, Al Cap with Little Abner, Alex Raymond with Flash Gordon, and Hal Foster with Tarzan. Siegel and Schuster see this as a golden opportunity. They submit their Superman creation to newspaper editors across the country, and in turn, every one of them promptly rejects it, some more than once. Here's DC artist Neil Adams. Nobody liked it. This was a, an anomaly. This was, I mean, nobody else was doing it. Everybody was doing cowboys, detective, science fiction type things. These two 17-year-old Jewish kids in Cleveland, Ohio, created a genre. Meanwhile, Donenfeld and Leibowitz are about to launch a new DC comic book title they call Action Comics. Having all but given up hope of ever seeing Superman in newspaper comics, Siegel and Schuster, now both 23, sell the rights of Superman to DC for $130 and go to work. June 1938, the first issue of Action Comics is born, and there he is on the cover, 
the red-caped crusader in blue tights with a signature S emblazoned on his chest, holding an automobile above his head. That 10-cent comic book sold for over 3.2 million in 2014. Leibowitz cautiously has 200,000 copies printed, but receives dealers' requests for more. He keeps the print run small until the fourth issue sells out. By the seventh issue, Action Comics is selling over half a million copies each month. And when we come back, more of this remarkable American story. This is Our American Stories. is our American stories and we continue with our story of comic superheroes. In 1939, Siegel and Schuster realize their dream when the two are asked to create a daily Superman newspaper comic strip and a color page for Sunday. Then DC did something unprecedented. They launched Superman the first comic book title devoted entirely to a single character. Here's the Jimi Hendrix of comic book art, Jim Sterenko. The elements that Siegel and Schuster adopted into this comic strip set the pace for virtually everything to come afterward. Superman. The kids in America. <laughs> They went ape. Within two years, these guys had changed the world. The comic book publishers, every one of them said, make superheroes. Superman represents President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal as imagined by those who champion it, without flaws or negative consequences. The young Jewish creators also define their superhero from another planet by what is happening in Nazi Germany. Here's the former president and publisher at DC Comics, Paul Levitz and Jerry Siegel. These are families that have come over from Europe and they're watching whoever they left behind disappear in a very scary fashion. So the characters live for them. Nazism was, uh, you know, rising up and uh, a lot of innocent people were being uh, killed. Countries were being invaded, a lot of innocents uh, slaughtered. And I felt that the world desperately needed a crusader, if only a fictional one. Here's comic writer Dwayne McDuffie. Superman was about the immigrant experience in a very, very powerful way. It's the kid from the old country who brings the best values from the old country, in this case, the old planet, to America, adds it to the pot, and accepts the best part of America. It's a really powerful set of ideas that was really important to people in the 30s and 40s. The newsstand dealers couldn't get enough. Within three issues, they were up to a million copies. It was a phenomenon. There was never anything like it. There was that supermania that hit in 1939 and 1940, 
We have not seen anything like it in American pop culture since. Beatlemania was not that big. Over 100,000 boys and girls in the United States and Canada are members of the Supermen of America. One mother says... I should like to thank the publishers of Action Comics magazine for including a health page in every issue. Billy has been eating his cereal and drinking his milk regularly since Superman told him to do so. Say, he can do about anything, can he? Everywhere you go, Superman, he's in your newspaper strip, he's on your radio, there's short cartoons in your theater, he's on clothing, you know, he's in the Macy's Day Parade as a balloon, he's at the World's Fair in costume, it's Superman Day at the World's Fair, it's a big deal. Everybody would have known Superman, from your grandmother right down to the immigrant who just got off of Ellis Island, everybody would have known. DC is quick to exploit the Superman formula. Editors send out a call to create a second costume superhero to match Superman's success. For the poor 18-year-old Jewish cartoonist from the Bronx named Bob Kane, this call does not go unnoticed. Here's Bob Kane. And at DC Comics at that time, the editor came over to me and he said, would you like to create another superhero in the uh, genre of Superman? And let's see, I was making about $25 a week. And I said, how much does Siegel and Schuster, who created Superman, make? Well, they make $800 a week apiece. I said, for that kind of money, you'll have a superhero on Monday. By Monday morning, you know, Kane comes back to his editor, Vince Sullivan, and says, here's what I got. And Vince Sullivan knew something good when he saw it. And he said, see, I love it. What do you call it? I said, that's a good question, Vince. <laughs> Maybe we'll call it the Bat-Hyphenated Man. Less than a year after Superman's debut... DC introduced the Batman. I wanted to be Bruce Wayne in my reverie. Instead of a poor kid, I imagined I'd like to be a rich playboy and fight crime at night. I can probably count on the fingers of one hand the comic book characters that have ever been created by affluent, successful people. The characters of longevity always come from a place of oppression, always come from a, a place of wanting to break out of the world that you're in. Here's comic artist... Erwin Hassan. We all were kids from the Bronx. We were all a bunch of schmucks to being talking Jewish. Schmucks. We were innocent, talented guys. Who schmucks? We never drew ourselves. Why? Why should we draw poor little guys? What would inspire us to draw poor little guys? Comic books is an industry made up of people who aren't accepted, who desperately want to be accepted. So they desperately want to be like mainstream America. It's why Batman's a millionaire and Superman is a farmer, real mainstream, real, real, real America. So they imprint themselves on heroic images that embody all the stuff they wish they were rich and handsome and muscular and able to handle any situation and uh, not tongue-tied. The public loved Batman. The public embraced Batman very quickly, especially when you get into the fourth or fifth Batman adventure and you start to outline his origins. The classic scene of young Bruce Wayne with his parents out behind a theater and his parents are gunned down before his young eyes and that's the moment that made him want to turn into Batman. That's why Batman works so well. Whatever he does, you understand why he does it. He's lost his parents at a random crime in the city, and he wants to make sure that no one else suffers the same horror that he had to go through. 
Batman's popularity soon rivals Superman's, and business at DC is booming. Within two years, you had Superman, who was so powerful that he could move planets, and then you had Batman, who had no powers at all. He was the opposite. All the other characters fit in between these two characters. In 1939, a young pulp magazine publisher named Martin Goodman launches an enduring enterprise called Marvel Comics. He puts the project under the editorial direction of his hard-working teenage nephew, Stanley Lieber, who writes comic books under the pseudonym of Stan Lee. Here's Stan Lee. Comic books were not respected in those days. I thought someday I would be a writer and I would write books. And I didn't want to use my name on these comics, this name that would one day appear on the great American novel. So I just shortened my name, which had been Stanley Martin Lieber. I shortened the first name, Stanley, to Stan Lee, so that I could save my name for these great things I would later write. A year after launching, Stan Lee creates Marvel's first star superhero, whose popularity comes to rival Superman himself. The ingeniously simple premise behind the red and gold costumed Captain Marvel was an orphan newsboy named Billy Batson who becomes the most powerful superhuman adult imaginable merely by speaking the magic word, Shazam. The letters stand for the seven immortal heroes, Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. DC responds to Captain Marvel's popularity by suing Marvel for alleged copyright infringement of Superman. The legal battle drags on for 12 years until 1953, when inevitably DC's Man of Steel wins, as he always does. In 1939, the war in Europe has begun. Even though America isn't involved yet, many superheroes are. Months after the Hitler-Stalin Pact in February 1940, Superman decides to fly himself into enemy territory. The moment you put him in Nazi Germany, you know, war is over. In fact, Look Magazine did a piece with Siegel and Schuster early on. The question was, how would Superman end the war? And the answer was, he flies over, he grabs Hitler by the scruff of the neck, he flies to Russia, grabs Stalin, takes them before the world court. And that's two pages, by the way. So Superman could have ended the war in apparently 14 panels of comics. Superman's victory made it into the hands of Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who denounces Superman as a Jew and mocks its creators as physically and intellectually circumcised. And when we come back, we continue this remarkable American story. By the way, just to hear Stanley Lee talk about his own embarrassment, putting his actual real name, Stanley Lieber, on these comic books, because one day he was going to be the next Ernest Hemingway. Well, you don't hear Stan Lee saying that anymore, or any of these guys in this area of work, because this is literature and of the highest caliber and brand around the world. When we continue more on comic book superheroes here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of comic book superheroes, the way it all began here in the United States. And by the way, if you like what you hear, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our podcast. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's get back to the story. Nine months before the United States would officially enter World War II, two Jewish cartoonists create a character who is ready to take on the Nazis, who bursts on the scene with an unforgettable cover. Here's Jim Starenko and comic historian Bradford Wright. Captain America threw a smashing right cross to the jaw of Adolf Hitler. That said everything about the character. They got hate mail for that. Uh, They got hate mail from isolationists. Captain America exploded on the newsstand and sold out of his first issue. In the spring of 1941, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby mixed their patriotic super soldier with political prophecies when Captain America stops an unnamed Asian power from destroying the U.S. Pacific Fleet seven months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Then, in 1941, DC launches Wonder Woman, the statuesque Amazon wrapped in the American flag. Here's comic writer and editor Louise Simonson. She's not an unreasonable icon to have been created. During World War II, women took over a lot of male roles. She's a Rosie the Riveter, only a goddess. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. When the Japanese actually do cripple the Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, the men in tights echo the nations. Batman delivers guns to the men on the front line, and Wonder Woman uses the heads of Hitler, Hirohito, and Mussolini as bowling pins. Here's comic creator Michael Chabon and Stan Lee. The superheroes went off to war with great gusto. Week after week, month after month, just pounding the hell out of the Nazis. The stories had so much pro-American propaganda that you'd almost think they were subsidized by the government, but it was just... We felt we had to do that. And then something very interesting happened, which was that comic books were included in care packages that were sent to soldiers, along with chocolate and cigarettes, and comic books became part of the standard reading material for GIs serving in the Second World War, and they liked them. Many of the brightest talents in the comic industry joined their superhero creations in the fight. Many enlist. Not all come back. Burt Christman was a young illustrator who, with Garner Fox, created Sandman. But his real love was flying. His real love was adventure. So he joined the Flying Tigers in World War II and tragically was shot down over Burma in the line of service. Stan Lee also served. I felt I can't be writing about all these comic book heroes and not be fighting myself. After victory in 1945, America welcomes home its real-life heroes. But the star-spangled morale boosters are no longer needed, nor wanted. Most get canceled by 1951, including 
Captain America. There are only three superheroes who are doing well, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. These three American icons carry the comic book industry on their backs to unprecedented heights when sales reach 100 million a month in 1953. Most of this success is due to DC following their audience to a brand new medium, television. Faster than a speeding bullet. In the 1940s, Superman's mission is defined one way. Superman fights a never-ending battle for truth and justice. By the 1950s and the, uh, the introduction of the Superman television show, of course, it became truth, justice, and the American way. That phrase, the American way, was all over the place in the 1950s because now we're stuck in a Cold War. In 1954, superheroes faced their greatest battle, not against a mad scientist or a foreign enemy, but against the United States Senate. Both houses of the U.S. Senate hold hearings on the nefarious effects of comic books on young minds. Comic books are an important contributing factor many cases of juvenile The hearings are a major blow for the comic book industry. Fearing the coercive effects of government censorship and in an effort to survive, most of the comic book publishers form the Comics Code Authority, a self-governing organization that will police each issue and grant seals of approval. At that time, the comic books were so attacked for the material that they were doing. Well, if that comic code emblem was not on the book, the book did not get distributed. Just one year after the code's implementation, sales plunge by 75%. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In the 1960s, we're going to the moon. We're already in Vietnam, and because of the government's heavy hand, there are millions of kids who are unfamiliar with comic books. But on a golf course in New York, superhero history is about to change when the publisher of DC Comics, Jack Leibowitz, informs the publisher of Marvel Comics, Martin Goodman, that they are having great success with their latest comic, The Justice League which combines the forces of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, and Aquaman to fight against the forces of evil. Marvel's publisher takes the DC success story to Stan Lee. Lee takes it to his wife. Here's Stan Lee. I had been doing these comics for about 20 years or so, and I really had had it up to here. I felt I want to quit and try something else. I told my wife, so she said, you know, Stan, before you quit, why don't you do one book the way you'd like to do it? Something for people, hopefully, with a higher IQ. I came up with the Fantastic Four. They were trying to be the first people to reach the moon. I had them take a spaceship. The ship is belted by cosmic rays, and they have to crash land. And because of the cosmic rays, each of them got a different power. Incredible. Inspired by the space race between the Americans and the Soviet Union, 
These will be the first superheroes invented out of the atomic age. Mr. Fantastic would over-explain everything the way I tend to do. The thing would say, will you shut up? We got it already. And, and he and the torch were always arguing and fighting. The thing hated being the thing. And the idea of superheroes hating being a superhero was really a novelty. And it produced a lot of psychological richness, at least comparatively speaking, uh, that had not been seen in comic books before. And so it was with the creation of the Fantastic Four that uh, comic books really uh, entered into the modern era. Marvel's decision to cast outsiders as heroes continues when in 1962, Stan Lee unleashes another atomic-aged anti-hero, the Incredible Hulk. I am the least scientific person you'll ever know. So I tried to seem scientific with our characters. I had the Hulk, and he was inundated by gamma rays. That's how he became the Hulk. Now, I wouldn't know a gamma ray if I saw it. I don't know what a gamma ray is, but if it sounds good, I'll use it. And what an American voice, what an American story. The 20th century right into the 21st. Comic book superheroes, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now for the final part of this great story about, well, American comic book superheroes, and so much of it, as we learned, had to do with World War II and these giant villains on the world stage, Hitler and Stalin. And now we're moving along into the 60s and 70s and up to the present. Let's go and return back to where we last left off. Marvel had suddenly emerged because Stan Lee created characters with an additional dimension to them. That is, superheroes with problems. This gives Stan Lee an idea. Why not weave a new kind of tale? A teenage superhero. Lee pitches the idea to his boss at Marvel. You say that he's a teenager? A hero can only be an adult. Teenagers are sidekicks. And you say you want him to have problems. Stan, don't you know what a hero is? It's interesting that in the 1930s, uh, you had the country seemingly falling apart. And yet you had these superheroes come in that were totally confident in their ability to resolve these problems. And then in the Kennedy years, the early 60s, things seemed to be fairly stable. And yet you had the Marvel superheroes come in who were vulnerable and, and confused and disoriented. The difference was the baby boomers. They were notoriously self-absorbed. <laughs> All this was magnified in, in popular culture geared towards youth. James Dean, for example, you know, he may look tough on the outside, but his heart is breaking and he wants to be accepted and he's unsure and his parents don't understand him and the world doesn't understand him. Peter Parker is a shy science student who lives with his aunt and uncle. He's bitten by a radioactive spider that gives him spider-like powers. 
Peter doesn't even consider fighting crime. He goes into show business. But when he fails to stop a thief who later murders his uncle, Peter Parker learns that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. What makes Spider-Man such an enduring character isn't Spider-Man, it's Peter Parker. Clark Kent was in disguise. Peter Parker was a fact. He was a 98-pound weakling. His life sucked. Even if you have the ability to, you know, swing from skyscrapers over the streets of New York, it doesn't help. That endures in the character Spider-Man to this day. In spite of Stan Lee's pessimistic publisher, Spider-Man premieres in the summer of 1962 and goes on to become Marvel's greatest success, second only to DC's Superman. Put simply, story formulas that appeal to the widest audiences tend to proliferate and endure, while those that do not, do neither. Comic books succeed or fail on the merits of their storytelling. But there is one issue that almost every American could rally around, the drug epidemic. In 1971, the Nixon administration reaches out to Stan Lee about doing a Spider-Man series on the dangers of drugs. Here's Stan Lee. We sent that book to the Comic Code office as we were sending all the books, and they rejected the book. I said, why? They said, you're not allowed to mention drugs in the comics. I said, but we're not telling the kids to take drugs. It's an anti-drug message. Sorry. So I was so proud of my publisher. I told him about it, and I said, Martin, I think we ought to put the book out without the seal of approval. He said, do it, Stan. We got more mail from teachers and parents and doctors and everybody all over the country saying how much they loved that book and how delighted they were. Within a week, they had a new meeting of the Comics Code Authority, which was all the publishers, the self-regulating agency, and they rewrote the Comics Code. They rewrote it to such an extent that it's gone. When it comes to the first superhero, Superman's durability is proven once again, this time on the big screen, and stars the 25-year-old Juilliard graduate Christopher Reeve. Here's Christopher Reeve. What sets Superman apart is that he has the wisdom to use his power for good. He's got the kind of maturity, or he's got the innocence, really, to look at the world very, very simply. And that's what makes him so different. When he says, I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way, everybody goes, <coughs> you know, but he's not kidding. It was just so perfectly cast. Christopher Reeve is Superman. Nobody else can touch the hem of that cape. It's all right, nothing to get worried about. Here is a character in a world where I didn't feel like I was being paid attention to, in a world where I didn't feel like I mattered. Here is somebody who cares about everybody. Whether you're rich or poor or black or white, Superman cares about everybody. And just in case it ever comes up in trivia, the first words uttered to the courteous cape crusader come from a star-struck pimp who sounds like Ric Flair. Excuse me. That's a bad outfit. The 1978 Superman motion picture is one of the biggest moneymakers in Warner Brothers film history to date. 
The movie is nominated for three Academy Awards, and a new wave of Supermania hits in the wake of the film's success. A wave that rolls into three sequels. I've got you. In the closing years of the Cold War, inflation is high and President Jimmy Carter is diagnosing Americans as having a crisis of confidence. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The comic book industry sees a desperate need for strength, confidence, and the courage to use force in the face of evil. Writer-artist Frank Miller gets his big break in 1979, when at the age of 22, when he revives a 1970s vigilante called The Punisher, and actually kills people. In the 1970s, there was a growing backlash against crime waves, against what some considered the permissiveness uh, that had crept into American society in the 60s and 70s. And this backlash found reflection in some popular vigilante anti-heroes. In Hollywood, for example, you had the Dirty Harry films. Uh, you could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? In comic books, you had a character like the Punisher. The Punisher was a Vietnam veteran who returned home to find his family murdered uh, in, an, in a gangland killing. Uh, he undertook a one-man war against crime, saying that justice you know, had failed to punish the guilty. So he's going to exact justice himself. Readers love The Punisher, and Marvel meets their demand. There are cities in Michigan. Oh, shut up. Here again is comic book historian Bradford Wright. People voted for Reagan because he kicked butt, because he came on as a tough guy. And I think that attitude was mirrored in superheroes of the 80s. It's not to say the people who wrote The Punisher believed that, but I think they did tap into a popular mood. In the 1990s, the comic book industry make another attempt to captivate readers. Sex, cynicism, and violence reach a level of occurrence never seen before. By 1993, thousands of comic book stores close. Hundreds of creators lose their jobs. And by 1996, Marvel files for bankruptcy. Monthly sales fall from 38 million to 7 million. Here's comic writer Marv Wolfman and Dwayne McDuffie. They got darker and darker and darker and they forgot the core of what most of these superhero comics are, which is about triumphing over adversity. The only way you could tell the villains from the heroes was by whose logo was on the cover. I mean, their behavior was evil, not morally ambiguous. These guys were just flat out, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. He's a guard. The call to action against the dark moral ambiguity will overtake not just the comic book universe, but the real world. One September morning. Here's the CEO of Marvel Comics, Avi Arad. This picture of Spider-Man looking at Ground Zero, it's compelling, it's emotional. He represents all of us. DC echoes Marvel's sentiment with Superman's response while he gazes at a giant collage of the fallen 9-11 heroes. The one-word bubble reads... Wow. Superheroes endure because 
They represent basic American beliefs, that there are choices to make between good and evil, that individuals can triumph over adversity. The ones that work are archetypes, made by people who believed and cared. Batman will still be around in a hundred years' time. Comic book writers and artists are doing the same thing that storytellers did drawing the pictures on the caves at Lascaux. We're using story to create context for life. Superheroes have always flourished in times of the greatest American adversity. In the Depression era, we were afraid of whether or not we would be able to put food on the table. We were afraid of being involved in a great world war that would take our freedom away. In the atomic age, we were afraid of radiation. Today, we're afraid of terrorist attacks. And in all of those eras of history, that's when superheroes have enjoyed their greatest resurgence. They're our mythology, they're our heroes. We need ideals to look up to. And you know, they're not gonna let us down. Superman's not gonna let us down. Superman's always gonna be there. To people all over the world, superheroes embody the values, hopes, and dreams of the greatest nation on the planet. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And if you like what you heard, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. There's so much more, hundreds of hours of podcasts, free for all to hear. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories.